the Jewish leadership are out to get the Lord. They're making a concerted effort now to get rid of Him. And as we lead up to the point of His crucifixion, this is one of those crucial moments in that interaction between Jesus Christ and the religious leadership of His day. And I pray that it will be an interaction between Jesus Christ and you and me this morning as well as He asks questions of of our lives and as we give answers to His Holy Spirit as we read this word. So Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 19. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who, is, or, who, or who it is that gives you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, what baptism of John from heaven? Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. When the original, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Kind of sounds funny, but we'll come to it. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Note the progression there. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not, or in Yiddish, God forbid. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. We'll continue with that saga next week as they try the next thing with Jesus. But it will intensify now. John Lennox, uh, anyone heard of John Lennox? His, uh, no? Okay, one at the back there. Good, I see you, sister. Um, 
John Lennox is an apologist. That, does, that doesn't mean he uh, apologizes for the gospel. It means he stands up for the gospel against those who would come against it. And in public argument, they will talk about and he will defend the veracity of Scripture. And he's written this book called, and I've titled my sermon by his book, thank you John, Gunning for God. And it describes the way the new atheists are now tackling Christianity and trying to turn the masses against God. And not just against God, but trying to convince the masses that there is no God, that he's a figment of the Christian imagination. So what they're doing is they're questioning the very authority of God and who he is and says he. This questioning of authority doesn't start there, does it? Those of you who've got kids, where does that questioning of authority start? You might have a teenager sitting next to you, but that's not where it started. Remember when they were in their little high chair and you're trying to put food in their mouth and and it's all over the place? That's where it started. They wanted to see who was in charge, mum or me. That's where it started. And that goes right back to our human nature. We are born in sin, you see. But that's where this questioning of authority starts, right back before the age of one. And it just intensifies from there. It's human nature. And so if that's human nature, we've got to ask ourselves this morning, am I still doing that? Not just in the way I live every day, but am I still questioning Jesus' authority every day as a believer? Maybe even without knowing it. Let's look at what Jesus can teach us here as we look at how he interacts with these religious leaders. You see, Jesus, as we saw last time, after he had overthrown the moneylenders' tables and caused fairly big confusion in the temple, he didn't just stop there and walk away and think, oh, well, that's it, I'll leave them over to hell. No. He carries on doing the work that God had sent him to do, right to the bitter end. We see him again in verse 1 of this chapter, teaching the people. And not just teaching the people, that means expounding what he's teaching, much like I'm trying to do here this morning. But he also teaches them the gospel. Those two always go together. People need to hear the gospel message. And so there he is in the temple courts, teaching the people and also bringing the gospel to them. So that's his work. That's what the religious leaders were supposed to be doing. But what do we find them doing in this very verse? Well, here it is. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders confront Jesus. And the word used there is, they come upon him suddenly. They didn't give him preparation here. They didn't send him a delegation saying, hey, at two o'clock we're going to come and speak to you about what you're doing in the temple. They suddenly came upon him. Because there was intent in what they were doing. Who is this? We see it's the chief priests. Those who are in charge of the temple. We see it's the scribes. Those who were the legal officers to do with the Torah or the Old Testament. Also the religious leaders. And then the elders of the city. Who were they? Well, they were compiled of supposedly those who were experienced and those who had wisdom in the tribe. The leaders of the clans. Those who were supposed to lead Israel. They came and they confronted Jesus. Together they formed what we call the Sanhedrin the Jewish religious council. They are out to get Jesus. And so they send this delegation compiled to these people. 
And what is their question to Jesus? It's not so much a question as a statement with a question mark at the end of it. What do they say to him? By whose authority are you doing these things? Jesus of Nazareth, you've come here, you've disrupted this temple. By whose authority are you doing these things? By whose authority are you teaching and holding these people accountable? By whose authority do you do this? They didn't really want an answer, did they? They weren't after information. They were making a charge. And it wasn't being done behind closed doors with Jesus just there. They were doing it in front of all these people that Jesus was teaching. And so it was a public challenge to Jesus' authority. By whose authority do you do this, Jesus? Answer us now. Why did they do it in this way? Well, we read last week too that as Jesus was teaching, more and more people were coming and they were hanging off his lips. He was gaining quite a following. And they were not just jealous, but they were concerned for their own authority. Why? Because their authority rested in the acceptance of the people. If the people didn't accept what they were saying, they'd have no authority. And so they start to cause doubt. They want to challenge Jesus publicly. Where does your authority come from? You see, their own authority they claimed from Moses. They claimed that in the Torah, in the five, in the five books of the Old Testament and in the rest of those Old Testament writings, they'd been set apart, the tribe of Levi, to serve in the temple. We've got authority by God's word. And the scribes, where does the authority come from? Well, they saw themselves as students of the Bible, students of the Torah, the Old Testament. And they claimed the authority from the rabbis who had gone and made, made interpretations of this, the teachings in the Torah and whose interpretations were elevated in authority to above the Torah. They said, well, we teach it with authority because we know what we are speaking about. We've studied the Torah. And these elders of Israel, well, they were the supposed ones with experience and wisdom. But they had been clustered in with the Sanhedrin here and together they come and they approach Jesus and they say to him, we know where our authority comes from, but where does your authority come from? Answer to the people. You see, the question wasn't a question, it was an attempt to entrap Jesus publicly. If Jesus couldn't answer this question, the people would stone him because he had disrupted temple worship. If Jesus couldn't justify where his authority came from in this moment now, the people would take him outside and stone him. That's how they worked those days. And so they think they've got him because what's he going to say? You see, if Jesus answered them with saying, well, my authority is from God, directly, just like that, coldly, he'd get stoned as well, if the people weren't convinced, because it would be seen as blasphemy. And they would swing it that way before the people. And so they think they've got him. But Jesus uses their deviousness against them, and so he asks them a contra question. And if you ever want to learn how to, how to, how do you answer people who ask you questions about your faith? Sometimes the best answer 
is a question. Those of you who know uh, anything about apologetics, and if you want to know more, this is the time for books today. Here's another book. It's called Tactics. How to share your faith and discuss your Christian faith with others. Sometimes the best way to ask people if they ask you about your faith is to ask them a question in return. Because many times when people come to you with questions, what they're coming to you with are questions that they've heard. The popular questions. Is God really alive? How do you know? But sometimes the best way to answer that question is to ask a question in return. To dig out the foundation under their question and to expose that there is actually no understanding there of what they're asking. They're just repeating what they've heard elsewhere. That's a whole different sermon. I'm not going there now. But that's what Jesus does here. And it is an often used rabbinical way of teaching. The teacher would ask good questions and then they would have to come up with answers and in that process learn. And so Jesus asks a brilliant question in return to them. He says to them, Okay, was the baptism of John then from heaven or from men? Now, on the surface of it, you think, well, what's he talking about? Why bring in John the Baptist here? You see, there's reason for it. John also came from obscurity. What they were saying to Jesus was, you haven't been through our rabbinical schools, so what gives you authority to come and teach like you are? You've just come from outside, come in. You say you're the great, the, the great prophet, and the people say you are the great prophet, but where's your authority from? You have never studied under us. The same with John, you see. John had come from obscurity. He'd had no formal training. He'd come in from the desert. And then one day he came and he started proclaiming the message that there was one, the Lamb, that they had to prepare for and they had to get ready for. He was the Messiah, the one God had promised. Just like Jesus here. The Pharisees, the religious leaders had heard John, but they had rejected that message which John had brought to them. And they were quite sensitive about it. Why? Because the people had accepted John as a great prophet. The leaders hadn't, but the people had. They saw that John was a special person. God had had his blessing on John, and they saw him as a great prophet sent by God, which he was with a message for them. But the leadership, the religious leadership, had rejected John. And they'd worked in against John, just like they are doing to Jesus. To the people, John had been a national hero. Right in front of them here, Jesus was turning into a, a national hero. He'd even come in to Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people had shouted his praises. He was a national hero. But they rejected him as they had John. And so Jesus brings up John the Baptist. where they had previously rejected the truth and that had stopped them from believing in Jesus as well, they are doing exactly the same with Jesus now. They are rejecting the truth of who He is and by rejecting the truth of who He is now, it stops them from learning any further truth. There's a principle there. You see, if we don't believe the truth put in front of us, why would we believe any other truth? We've got to accept what is in front of us, what has been revealed to us now, and then more will be revealed to us. That's what happens here. 
Just turn with me, if you will, very quickly to John chapter 7, verse 14 to 17. There's a principle here, and I want you to show you that I'm not making this up. It comes from Scripture. It's a domino effect that Scripture describes to us about truth. John chapter 7, verse 14 to 17. That's what Jesus says. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied, i.e., in our schools? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Here's the principle. If anyone's will is to do God's will, in other words, you hear the teaching and then you accept it and want to do it, right? He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. See, the test is, have you accepted the truth, and are you willing to put that into practice? If not, why would more truth be given to you, and why would you accept it? The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the authority of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And so these Pharisees and the religious leaders are now stuck in a dilemma. What's the dilemma? Well, here it is. And they spell it out themselves. Verse 5 to 7. They say, If we say that John's authority is from heaven, then Jesus will say, Why did you not believe him then? So if his authority is from heaven, then Jesus will say, Why did you not believe him? if he is speaking from God. And if the people hear that, guess what the people are going to do to the leadership? They're going to stone them. Because they should have listened to John in the first place. People were very volatile those days with rocks. Rough justice. That's how they did it. You see, if the people can be convinced that their leaders didn't listen to John, then what the people will say is, you were leading us astray, and therefore you need to die. And so they can't admit the guilt, not to Jesus, not to the people, because they're going to get stoned. But, they say, on the other side, I love it, this is very Jewish. If this, then that. It's beautiful. But if we say, his authority is from men, then all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a great prophet. So they stuck in our proverbial saying, between a rock and a hard place. Literally. So what do they do? This is a mo- they thought this was going to be the moment when they would lead Jesus outside and stone him. Jesus has turned it on its head. This is the moment when the people can lead the leadership outside and stone them. Judge them. So what do they know? They've only got one course of action. What is that? And it's what little boys do when they get caught with their hand in the cookie jar. The only thing they can say is, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a legal retort used many times by rabbis um, and the Pharisees called a demurrer, by which you acknowledge the facts, but you question the actual relevance of those facts to your case. So in other words, we don't know where his authority came from. They very well knew, but they can't admit it. And so, like a little boy with his hand in the cookie jar, Johnny, why did you steal the cookies? 
I don't know. He knows. Same thing. Now, look at Jesus' response, all right? Verse 8. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So why does Jesus say that? When I first read that, I first thought, that's a bit, I'll get back at you, well then I'm not going to answer your question. No, it's not like that at all, you see. What is Jesus saying here? He says, well, if you can't answer the simple question I put to you, and you put to me, then I'm not going to waste truth on you. What does he mean by that? Were they listening to truth? No, they didn't want to hear truth. So why would he cast his pearl before swine? He teaches about that elsewhere. Why waste truth? It's a principle we can learn from as well. When we are interacting with people, but listen, he was God. He could see their souls, right? That's one major advantage to you and I. When we interact with people, we can't see their souls. So we need the Holy Spirit to guide us in this and to give us wisdom in this. When you are interacting with a friend or a colleague and it seems like they're just antagonistic. Carry on for a while. Persevere. But after a while, if you just sense that attitude is just negative and they're making fun, don't cast your pearl before swine anymore. They will just trample it underfoot, says Matthew. Step away. Take your energies elsewhere. They don't want to know. Same thing that Jesus is teaching here. Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. He never leaves it there. He always takes it the next step, you see. Because he is concerned for their souls, as he is for the people in front of him. He loves these Pharisees. And even with these things that he says to them, he wants to see them come to the light too. So what does he do? He tells a parable. And when Jesus tells parables, what is a parable again? Yes? A teaching story. We've got to sit up and take notes because we can learn from it as well. So what is the parable? Well, we read about this, this vineyard. And there's this landowner. And if you want to know the context of this parable, in Jesus' time, they had big blocks of land, especially on the shores of Galilee, the, 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 the proper um, warm slopes of Galilee, where they could grow vines. And also um, in the Jordan Valley on some of those slopes on the Jordan River where they could grow vines as well. And there were vast blocks of land there that were owned by foreign owners. Remember, Israel wasn't Israel's anymore. They belonged to foreigners. The Romans had come in. Other nations were among them. And rich men would come in, buy these blocks of land, set up vineyards, and then they'd get locals to farm it for them. And then they would ask some of the produce every year. It's a good, good idea. Someone else works, you get the benefits. And so that's what they did. That was the context. And so this parable is nothing new. He says there's this rich landowner. And what does he do? He sets up a vineyard. He makes sure the vines are growing properly. And then he gives it over to vine growers. In our context in New Zealand, to be like share milkers, share croppers, if you will. Farmers who would farm this on his behalf. And when the right time comes, he sends a messenger to his, uh, his uh, sharecroppers and he says to them, could you send me some of the crop please? He had every right to have some of that benefit. But what do they do with the first messenger? They send him away. 
And so, what does he do? Patience of this landowner. He sends another messenger. But this time, intensification here, they don't just send the man away, they beat him and then send him away. And so it's getting worse every time. And the message should come out to the owner, they don't like you. And so what does he do? The patience of the landowner. We're going to come to what it all means. He sends a third one, and this time they beat him severely and send him back. So what does he do now, says Jesus? Well, he sends, he says, if I send my own beloved son to them, surely they will listen to him. Now, as soon as Jesus uttered those words, my own beloved son, the people would have snapped what he's talking about because he was using scriptural language there. They would know immediately he was talking about the Messiah. Ah, I get it. And the Pharisees would have got it. So, he sends his own beloved son. But what happens to his beloved son? Those wicked farmers, they say to themselves, if he's sending his son now, if we kill him, then Jewish law says, that we can own this place. Because obviously, the owner must be dead. Or maybe he just doesn't care. He's just sent these people ahead of him. He doesn't want to come here anymore. So if we get rid of them, we can own this land. And we'll have all the profit. And so what do they do? They take this son, they throw him out, and then they stone him to death. They kill him. And then Jesus puts to them, so what would, what would a good owner do about these evil farmers? And he leaves the question hanging because everyone knows the answer. He has to bring them judgment, right? That's only fair. But because Jesus had uttered those words, my own beloved son, the people knew who he was talking about. And the whole parable fell into place for them. You see, when he was speaking about the vineyard owner, he was speaking about God who planted his nation Israel. And he often speaks about them in the Old Testament as his vine, his vineyard. They knew those pictures. He had planted his nation. He had given them many benefits. He had put leaders in charge of them, these vine growers, these religious leaders. But what had the religious leaders done? When God had sent prophets in among them, many prophets in the Old Testament, it is recorded that they were stoned, they were killed, they were martyred for bringing the message from God by his own people and by the leadership of his own people. And so God sent more prophets and more prophets, a second, a third, yes, even the great prophet, John the Baptist. And what happened? He was martyred, he was rejected, not just by the Romans, but by the Jewish leadership and the very own people who didn't believe what he was saying. Yes, he was a great prophet, but they didn't essentially believe in the end what he had said. They doubted. And so what did God do? As he had promised right through the Old Testament, he sent his only beloved son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah among them. The very one standing in front of them. And what had they done? They would kill him. In the parable, they killed him. To come in the future, Jesus standing in front of them, they would kill him very shortly in a matter of days. He's exposing their plots in front of them. And pointing this parable directly at them. 
So what does this, what does this vine owner do? The vineyard owner? He's got to bring judgment, right? So what does Jesus do? He speaks to them a warning. Verses 17 to 18. And that's where we get these words from. The stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. And as he speaks these words, the scripture says, he looks intently at the leadership. What is he doing? He's speaking these words of judgment over them. The very same words the crowd had been singing just a day ago over Jesus when he came into Jerusalem. And he says to them, I am telling you who this is. The stone which the builders rejected, this same stone has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, you, the leadership, you are those builders who rejected the stone. You are rejecting me. You are rejecting my authority. But in God's plan, this one that you reject, the very stone, will become the main building block, the chief cornerstone that God builds his whole kingdom on. Do you see the opposites? They thought it was going to work out one way. God worked out completely the opposite. What they thought they were rejecting, God placed central in the faith. He says, you are those builders who have rejected me. Now you can already imagine their feelings towards him. And they're standing in front of the people. And so he says, he adds to that. He warns them. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Can you see that in your text there? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Now I've heard this misquoted. People will say, well, if you come to Jesus Christ then he will break you, and then he'll remake you. Well, that's very sweet and nice and true, but not for this text. He's speaking judgment here. So if you're saying, well, he's going to judge me first, okay, then stick with that. But he's speaking judgment here. He says, everyone who falls on, or the literal word here is, everyone who stumbles on that stone will be broken to pieces. So do you see the picture in your head now? They stumble over this rock, they fall on it, and they're broken to pieces. They are broken to pieces because of their falling, right? He says, if you stumble over the sun, if you don't accept what I'm saying to you, then judgment will come on you. You will fall across the sun. You will not escape him. You will have to make reckoning with him and the truth which he is speaking to you. You will fall on him and you will be broken. But, now look at the intensification here. But on whomever this big rock falls, it will scatter him like the dust. The literal translation here is, it will grind him to dust, dust-sized particles. What's the difference? Jesus says, if you listen to my words, and you stumble over me, and you don't accept what I say, then you have stumbled across Jesus Christ, and you'll be judged for that. But, looking intently at the leaders, if you continue in this attitude of rejection, even though you know the truth and you're leading these people astray, then that big cornerstone will land on you and grind you to dust. There's an intensification here. You will be judged forever because they are leaders of God. Do you see the warning to them? You will be utterly destroyed Forever. Now, before you think I'm teaching annihilation, that you will die once and then you'll know nothing the rest of eternity, no. You will be in hell, says the Lord. You will be 
punished for that misleading of my people and for rejecting me forever and ever and ever, whatever that punishment looks like. Be warned, says Jesus. And that is why I added in the next verse. From that very hour, they sought to kill him. Gloves were off now. And as we go through the next parts in Scripture, you'll see this intensification happening. They're going to try the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, until they succeed. And that stone which they thought they'd put away will then rise again on the third day and will be Christ triumphant. And Christ's prophecies here will come true. And they're still true today, because here we are. So, that's the parable. Three things that I want to bring to our attention this morning. First one is this. How do we, you and I, unwittingly and knowingly question Jesus' authority in our daily lives? I say unwittingly. Why? There's a verse in Jeremiah which says this. Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Listen to this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you got a true image of what the sin in you can really do? It can deceive you so well that you don't even know you're sinning when you're sinning against Christ. And that is why when we come before the Lord, we've got to ask Him, Lord, forgive me for the sins that I, that I commit before you, even those unknowing ones, Lord. I know about the ones I know about. Please forgive me. But the ones I don't even know about, Lord. My heart is deceitful above all other things. Forgive me. Do we come like that before the Lord? And what about those ones we know about? Do we come before the Lord? Do we, do we confess them before Him? Those truths that I've heard over and over, do I come before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I still haven't put into practice what I heard last week. Forgive me. Teach me again. Or do we just carry on? What is the domino effect we've learnt? If we don't listen to the truths put in front of us, why would there be new truths given to us? We need to learn and put into practice. Second question to you and I. What will happen to those who constantly reject Jesus as their authority? I've put these questions in the bulletin too for you. What will happen to those who constantly reject Jesus as their authority. I want to ask you a personal question, as I usually do, to me as well. How many more servants will you and I send away before we listen to the one who owns the vineyard? How many sermons have we listened to in our lives? How many pieces of truth have we listened to in our lives? How many of those servants have we turned away? And we're just not listening. How many more servants does the Master have to send our way? You see, there's a warning here. He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to this earth. He's died. He's resurrected. He's in the heavens. He's about to return, says Scripture. Would you now reject Him too? What is He teaching you today through His Word? Would you reject Him too through His Word? You see, one day... A time will come when that great cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, will come. 
Are we ready for His coming? I'm going to come back to that because it's not all doom and gloom. There is good news in that. But just a third question before I do. How can we discern then in our daily living between the lost who need to hear the gospel and those who just want to fight? I've had that. spoken to people here in my office. We want to ask you about this or that question, but when you analyze what they're saying, they just want to fight. They've got a beef with God and they take it out on the pastor. That's why we go bald. How do we discern between those who really have questions and those who just want to fight? You see, we've got to ask the Holy Spirit to help us in that. But we've really got to examine attitudes. If I give them some truth which is easy to understand, are they willing to accept that? Or do they just fight that simple little truth as well? There's attitudes, you see. I said there's good news with all the bad news. Well, here's the good news. Think about this. God is a God of infinite grace and compassion. Is that true? Yes. Praise the Lord for that. But, it's also written, Hebrews 12, 12, 29, He is a consuming fire. So how do I balance out those two? You see, there's a very definite truth there. Where there is judgment There is always mercy. I've said that many times from this pulpit. God reveals Himself in this way. Yes, there's going to be judgment, but now is the day for mercy. There is always mercy where there is judgment. And so, Psalm 2 verse 12 speaks about the judgment and our reaction to that. And this is what it says. Interesting words these. It says, submit to God's royal son. The words there are kiss the royal son. Pay homage to the royal son. Who is that? Jesus Christ. Or he will become angry and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities for his anger flares up in an instant. I'll come back to the rest of that verse now. What's he saying there? He's saying, pay homage to God's royal son while you can or he will become angry. It, it doesn't mean he's got a short temper. It means his judgment will come on you if you don't. Or you will be destroyed in the midst of your activities. It will happen suddenly to you when you least expect it. His anger flares up in an instant. In other words, his judgment can come at any time. Be ready. Pay homage to the sun. And then the psalmist says, But what joy for all who take refuge in him. Judgment, mercy. Judgment, mercy. Beautiful. And just to leave you with some mercy this morning. Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, Old Testament. Listen to these beautiful words. And if you do not know Jesus Christ yet, listen to these words which are coming to you from Him. There is still time for mercy. Here it is. God says to you, Who is a God like me? He's speaking to us, right? Micah's saying, the prophet, Who is a God like you who pardons sin, who forgives the transgressions, of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. I love those words. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. I thank the Lord every day when I remember those words. He doesn't remember my sin and stay angry with that. He remembers mercy too. He shows me mercy. He forgives me. He brings me close as a son. 
to my God. And He can do the same for us as well. There's a lot here this morning. I pray that the Holy Spirit has highlighted even just one piece of truth to you this morning. And I pray that you will work with that truth as God works in you and that you will be obedient to that. So that when we come together again or when you are reading your daily devotions before the Lord and He shows you more truth, that you are then open to that next truth which He will show you. But if you don't accept what you've heard today, you won't accept what you see tomorrow. That's the way He works with His truth. Lord, the merciful to us is the prayer we pray. Amen. Let's just pray. Lord our God, thank you for this example and quite a severe example, not just to that leadership but also to us today. Lord, may we be serious about who you are when you in your authority as a son of God highlight things in our lives. May we listen to those, Lord, not out of fear for you but out of love for what you've done for us. You've shown us mercy as well. May we love you by our obedience. May we be sensitive to the truth. May we listen to it. May we seek to obey it so that you can continue to shape us and form us to be holy, set apart for you and to be one day like your son. And Lord, I pray for any here that do not yet know you. Lord, the warning has gone out as well that one day they will face the judgment of the living God, the one who really exists. And today is the day that you say, come to me and I will show you mercy. I will take away that sin which is in your life so prevalent. I will take it away and in its place I will pour out life and love and mercy. And instead of judgment one day, you too will face a God of love who will welcome you into his presence. Do your work among us, I pray. And use us this week, this week for your service to your glory. Amen.